Yoko. Hi, Kate. This is episode 25. Oh, so where are you from? Oh my god, we've been doing this for two years. Two years! Dear god. I know. Yoko, do you huh? remember episode one? Uh, sometimes I feel like I choose to forget because <laughs> it's like looking at your work from when you were in, like looking at your artwork from high school and you're like, oh, why? <laughs> we've, I feel like we've come a long way. I know. Oh my God. Yeah. We've had a bunch of different guests over the last two years. Yeah. Movie directors, DJs, yes. comedians, yes. adoptees, yes. drag queens, <laughs> illustrators, and us. <laughs> and us. And then us again. I'm yeah, proud of us. Me too. To do this for two years. Yeah. And I'm especially proud of us for not being apologetic about our six month break. Yeah. <laughs> not sorry. Mental health is important. Yeah, we have stuff. <laughs> we do have stuff outside of this going on yeah. that is important and worth doing. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we forgot about y'all. I know. Um, all right. Well, Yoko, let's get into it. Very important update. <laughs> y'all. Kate has a boyfriend. Oh, God! <laughs> this is really important to me. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> I'm just so happy for you, Kate. Oh. He seems great. Seems. He is great. I met him twice. I sat dinner with him yesterday. He also has listened to all of our episodes, so obviously I like him. Oh, um, what's going on? What's going on? Aside from the most important news, which you got out of the way. Uh, I'm officiating another wedding. Oh. the second time I will be officiating a wedding. Kate read me the speech and it's very good. Yeah. She I... is not for hire. <laughs> <laughs> I can only write beautiful words for people I really care about. So if I don't know sense. you very intimately or deeply, please don't ask me. Because I'm not going <laughs> to just pull this out of thin air. But yeah, it's for my friends Kyle and Zach. I'm so happy for them. Aww. Getting hitched. It's been super fun writing it. I've been like writing it bit by bit on the subway or like it's bits, bits of it will like come to me like in the middle of the night when I'm like kind of getting ready to fall asleep. And I think like mm. that's like a really good way to kind of go about it once you have like the general kind of structure in place. So now it's like a lot of just finishing touches and stuff. Cool. I feel like you, so you were asked to officiate this wedding before you started dating somebody and mm -hmm. like I'm curious to know has your perspective or yeah your approach to writing this changed since you started dating this guy absolutely oh my god <laughs> I mean it's also a combination of that and uh every time that I've officiated a wedding all two times I've mm -hmm. sent out a uh survey yes yeah about marriage to married people married or engaged people mm -hmm. and um it has been really informative about like why people get married. So Yoko, what do you think the number one reason is why people get married or what is like the most common write in response? Cause basically the questions are how long have you been married or engaged? Mm -hmm. If you asked, why did you ask? If you accepted, why did you accept? And if you had any advice to give to people on their wedding day, what could it be? And your question is what is the, the high, the most popular answer for why a person Asked or accepted. Correct. Um, well, I mean, I know the answer to this because you <laughs> told me. Is it because this person is their best friend? Yes, you're going <laughs> it is. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so the most popular answer about, like, why people want to get married, um, and keep in mind, like, I asked, I gave this survey to my friends, my family, and, um... Your colleagues. My colleagues, like, at work, and then they, I also encouraged everyone to just, like, send it out to, like, anyone they knew that was married or engaged. Mm -hmm. And I got responses from people who had been married for, like, more than 30 years, all the way down to, like, engaged for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And the advice and the reasons across the board are all over the place. There's mm -hmm. no correlation between type of answer mm -hmm. and, like, number of years married or engaged, mm -hmm. which I found really encouraging. So, like, the first time I did the survey, um, it was because I was single, and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be, like, ushering my two friends across this, like, meaningful life threshold of, like, love, and I've... I had, like, never really been in love at the time, and I was like, I need to, like, ask, like, or, and I'd never been married either, so mm -hmm. just, like, I, and I didn't want to assume that, like, marriage is always about love. That was definitely yeah. my assumption, was that the number one reason why people got married was because they were in love. Mm. And the most common reason is actually because they're best friends, and this person knows them better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first time I sent out the survey, the second most common response was oh i thought we would be good life partners and then the third most common response was we fell in love mm -hmm. and that first time i sent out the survey i got about 25 responses <clears throat> this time i got like 55 responses nice yeah mm -hmm. and if you assume that like most men do the asking and most women do the accepting i think i actually got more answers from men the first time oh interesting but this second time i definitely got more people who accepted a wedding proposal mm. so this is just an assumption but i'm going to assume that that is more women mm -hmm. um but an answer that came up that was new this time around was i can't imagine my life without this person yeah i actually think that that overtook we would be good life partners dang it was i can't imagine my life without this person i remember you you mentioning this to me when we first talked about it and i wondered if so you ran the second survey Recently, mm -hmm. in like the end of last year, maybe the end of twenty seventeen ish. It was probably in February. Okay, so early twenty eighteen, and then the last, and when you ran the last survey, it was in April of twenty, or like maybe like November of twenty fifteen. November of twenty fifteen, and I feel like before Trump was elected. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that maybe the reason why that second answer, like I can't imagine my life without this person, is just like I. I wondered, this is me being really cynical, I wondered if it is because, like, these people just went through a whole year of a Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. That really kind of sucks. <laughs> like, it was it was always kind of sucky leading up to Trump. Mm -hmm. And then, then you, like, live it for real, and you're just, like, you think about the, the way you got through that year, and it might have been that person that you're about to get married to. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I don't know. it's... It's really, like, both times that I've run the survey, it's just been really inspiring. Yeah. Because regardless of, like, why someone got married, it's just, like, people are really excited to talk about marriage, right? And I think it's just a testament to, like, how much, like, another person's kind of, like, support and um, just being there with you is, like, really important to just human beings in general. Totally. And I remember thinking, like, the first time I ran the survey being, like, oh, Am I just going to be really cynical and really depressed and really sad about this afterwards? But no, I was definitely like super hopeful or just like, you know what? Like when you meet the right person, you'll just know and yeah. you won't have to think about it or whatever because I, that's what they said in the survey. <laughs> I, I read that it would be great. So <laughs> no, I think 
think that's what that's what I like so much about you, Kate. I feel like some people could read like really positive answers and be like, "Wow, I don't have that. That sucks." But I feel like the fact that you were like really inspired and I don't know, it gave you a lot of hope for the world and like your life. And I thought that that was really great. And I think that's I think that's because of you too, Kate. Oh, thanks, Yoko. Oh, I will also say one other thing. Which is the, I mean, the kind of advice, the advice section, it's like, there's like a couple things that come up verbatim Uh multiple times. The number one piece of advice is don't sweat the small stuff. Mm -hmm. The next most common piece of advice is don't go to bed angry. So interesting that people think of that. Yeah, I think it's just all about like choosing your battles and not yeah. like being petty and just sort of like uh, don't let it fester. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, learning how to communicate is really important. Is another theme that kind of comes up. Mm-hmm. I really want to, um, not really want to. I am going to. I am going to write like a like a blog post, kind of like detailing like the findings of this survey. Actually, so I'm at 76 responses right now. Actually, it's more like 80 because I got a few write-in ones from mm-hmm. family members. But um, I kind of want to do a blog post, kind of like highlighting the findings of this survey. When's that media post gonna come out though? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean. I kind of wanted to come out like after I've done the, the wedding. second one. Yeah, after I've done the second wedding, because I think I'm debating over whether or not I'm going to like couple the findings of the survey with like the fact that I was officiating a wedding, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to like do it after. Yeah. Afterwards, when I like am still riding the high off of like witnessing two people who are very much in love, kind of you know. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's beautiful. <laughs> cool. Well, I also look forward to that. To that medium post. Um, I would really like to get 100 responses, though. So I'm at, like, 80. I need just, like, 20 more people. So if you're interested, check the show notes. I'll include a link. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Doing, doing a, what is it, just, like, user research? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's, like, the, the reason why I, like, did the survey was because I felt so uninformed about marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I need more data. I need more, you know, substance. And I need to, like, know something deep and meaningful and honest mm-hmm. to say about marriage. And I can't speak to that. So what do you do is you just, like, ask people who can. A true UX designer. <laughs> Kate Matsumoto, UX designer. Hey, happily employed at Etsy. But, you know, just throwing it out there. <laughs> What's been new with you, Yoko? I feel like I talked about my marriage survey forever, ever. (laughs) Uh, Nothing really is new with me, but that's not a bad thing. You're going to a lot of weddings. Oh my god, yeah. Last year I felt like... So last year and the year before, I feel like max we had two weddings a year. Last year we only had one. And I was like, okay, so I think the wedding wave has ended nope i am going to four weddings this year i already went to one and a bachelorette party and uh yeah when kevin and i first started getting invited to weddings we were like we need to leave a really good impression on all of the guests Mm -hmm. uh we need to like be on the dance floor we need to be really fun we need to not get like shit faced yeah we need to be really well behaved and really fun so we keep getting invited to more weddings and uh it's totally worked and um kevin and yoko are fantastic wedding attendees thank you mm-hmm. i've just seen the photos i've okay. been to a wedding with i just you. realized that we've never been to a wedding together i know who in our mutual acquaintance is gonna get married and invite both of us come on guys come on come on make it happen mm-hmm. 
When do you think the waves of weddings were for you? I want to say, like, late. I was, like, maybe mm, the year that, like, Sachi got married, I think. 2015 was a big year. I was 29. Mm Mm-hmm. So. That seems about right. Yeah. I'm turning 29 this year. Yeah. But I also, it, well, now you're dating somebody, but also, like, the number of weddings were compounded because I was dating somebody who was also, who also had friends who were getting married. Right. So that's, like, it's, like, double the amount of weddings. Uh. So, not a bad thing. But, yeah. So I thought the, I thought the wave was over. It's not over. People, Still going. People keep getting married, as people we found out. Doing this. And that is why that survey needs to go out every once in a while. Anyway, <laughs> shall we move on? <laughs> model minorities. Model minorities. Yoko, who's your model minority? My model minority is a man named Andrew Mam. He is a dancer. So this is... I don't know Andrew Mam personally, but he taught breakdancing as like a sort of fun elective at Berkeley, and Kevin took his class. And since he's like told me about this guy, he has this like sort of legendary status in my mind because like Kevin seems to like look up to him. He's a very talented dancer. He he um, performed with the Jabberwockies for a little bit, um, and he's also a photographer and has like an Instagram presence. Yep. Um, he was also in that video, the Asian men aren't hot video, mm-hmm. where they're actually all really hot, and he is especially hot, mm-hmm. and also dancing, which is like, mm-hmm. yes, always, always yep. plus one. Yes, mm-hmm. plus one. And one thing that I had found, also bonus, his sister is apparently like a huge pop star in Cambodia, which I'm just like, okay, that's, even, that's just like way out there and awesome. But one thing that I thought was really interesting is he he wrote an Instagram post that I didn't see until much later, so I missed the actual content that he was talking about. But apparently he had gone through a phase where he had this like complex about being an Asian man Aww. and being um, considered not good looking, which is like really a shame because this guy is cute. You know? A lot of dudes feel that way. Yeah, and it's really... So he, like, he had this complex, and he tried to fight it. Like, he was like, I am going to, like, get my fashion together. I'm going to work out. I'm going to pursue women, and I'm going to, like, basically be, like, a sex... He's like, I'm going to try to be a sex symbol, sex god. Wow. So, and he was really successful at it, and then realized that he was just, like, not fulfilling his life. Mm. Which, like, made me so sad. Um, but like the fact that he did that at all, I was just like kind of impressed with. And also like, you know, it kind of made me think about just like the state of how Asian men are viewed as like non-sexual, non-attractive eunuchs basically. And I was just like, that's really sad. And I'm really grateful to somebody like Andrew who try to explore the, like, the far boundaries of, like, where that can go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also grateful that he has since, like, found peace and is comfortable with himself and he, like, continues to share on Facebook and on Instagram. And, yeah, I don't really know this guy. I think I follow, I, like, I don't know, maybe we mutually follow each other on Instagram. That'd be kind of cool. But uh, in addition to being really talented and... Uh, both in dance and photography, I just, like, really appreciate 
that he even shared that. Yeah. Yeah, you know? And he also has been, like, exploring, like, his more feminine side now. So he's been... He has, like, photos of himself, like, wearing all these fashions that his friends have made that are, like, not traditionally masculine, mm-hmm. in quotes. And I'm just, like... I just have so much respect for somebody who is really comfortable exploring themselves in that way. Yeah. All the way from all the way from that to like that crazy like sex god life that he lived. Yeah. So just like really interesting dude. Really yeah. cool. Uh so yeah, shout out to you, Andrew. A game, ma'am. A game is A game is his B boy name. So yeah. That's it. Nice. Yeah. Nice dude. Uh Kate, who's your mom minority? My model minority is a dude named Jung Jin Kim, uh-huh. otherwise known as Chloe Kim's dad. Hey, oh Olympic gold medalist Chloe Kim. Yes, Chloe Kim's back to back tenades. <laughs> the dad that birthed her. Damn. Yeah. Yo, if you don't know this, Chloe Kim's dad regularly drove her six hours from their house in Torrance, California, to Mammoth. Oh my God. To practice snowboarding and he quit his job to support chloe chloe won the gold she is fantastic have you seen that like car ad yes oh my god is it a toyota ad maybe it's toyota yeah it's the one where she's like waiting for him at first and mm-hmm. he like shows up late to pick her up and she's like dad and then he like quits his job and then he like picks her up and he's there all the time and i'm just like tears oh god <sighs> Do you think your dad would, like, quit his job to support you in an, in an, in an endeavor of your choosing? Uh, really hard to know because I've never expected it. Mm. And I don't, that's not anybody's fault. I think, I don't think I expect any parent to do that. Yeah, of course. I don't think any kid would expect their parents to. Or, yeah. I don't know, I don't want to speak to this Gen Z generation. But... Yeah, who knows. Usually the story is, like, the dance moms. Oh, God. Which is, like... Totally not. Or like the star moms, like the actor or actress mom, right? Yeah. You know, okay, I think there is exactly one sport that I could excel in that my dad, that would cause my dad to quit his job. Is it golf? Yes, it is. Hey, how did I know that? <laughs> like, Because Kate's dad loves golf. <laughs> my dad, his one and only joy in life is golf. And I was told <laughs> at the age of nine that my brother and I were a disgrace to the sport. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, did your dad tell you that? No, okay. our golf teacher did how rude well we he wasn't wrong (laughs) it was because like we were at the driving range and we were like practicing and my brother just kind of like you know went back wound up for a swing and just flung his golf club behind him ended up like knocking it into the bushes and i think just golf is such a hard game to get behind when you're like a little kid and you're full of energy and like why? Yeah, it Tiger like, Woods. Patience and concentration. And yeah, and all you want to do is just run around and be hyperactive. You and have to wait for other people to be done with stuff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I was listening to a podcast that like Japan has like the most like top tier golf courses in the world or something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. Right. I'm surprised it's Japan and not some other Asian country that's bigger. bigger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway. But yeah, yeah, man, I don't see it for golf, but mad, mad props to Chloe Kim's dad for, for sure. quitting his job to help her be a professional snowboarder. Yeah, I feel like it's just, it just flies in the face of all of those Asian dad stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like quitting your job for your kid. Mm-hmm. One. 
Letting your kids snowboard, too. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I guess, like, the the hard work and discipline and potential, like, stresses that might be involved with that kind of have some Asian dad quality. Anyway, whatever. Yo, it was worth it. Chloe Kim is getting a Barbie doll, so. Oh, my God. Anything to get more Asian Barbie dolls? Get more Asian Barbie dolls. Who else is there? Lucy Liu? Does Lucy Liu have a Barbie doll? I don't know. That's the first person I thought of. Who I, else? I got this Barbie doll. It was a collector's edition of, like, uh, Japan, and it was a Japanese Barbie doll in a kimono. Oh, that's cool. With, like, long black hair. Hmm. I love that one. Because it looked like me. Or so I thought. <laughs> Anyways, holler. Chloe Kim's dad, you the best. Thank you, Mr. Kim. Do you want to talk about our interview with Christina Shi? Yeah. So this episode, we had uh, a really awesome time chatting with Christina Shi. She teaches a course called Entrepreneurial Design at SVA with past guest Gary Chow. And she is also uh, one of the organizers for Letters for Black Lives. Um, and she's currently working on this project called Multi-Entry, which is a sort of an ethnographic look into the, the modern youth culture of China. Whoa. Yeah, which was, and we talked about that a little bit, and it was all really, really fun. She was great. Also, killer wardrobe. Amazing outfit that day. Yeah. Do you remember? She was wearing these, like, super awesome, like, wrist guard things. Yes. It's way tight. Slight, like, steampunk. Yeah. Steampunk sporty. Sporty, sporty steampunk. Steam's, nope. Nope, nope, Trend. nope. Steam sport, nope. <laughs> anyway, Christina, you were great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So, today on the podcast, we have Christina Shi, who has a very long list of awesome accomplishments, and I'm going to read some of them. So, Christina teaches entrepreneurial design at SVA with past guest Gary Chow, which is super cool. Gary! Christina co-organized Letters for Black Lives, which is a set of collaboratively written and translated resources for facilitating conversations about race and social justice, which was featured on an episode of Code Switch, our second favorite podcast, the first (laughs) being ours. Uh, Christina is a funder and trustee of the Awesome Foundation, which helps small groups of people help fund $1,000 grants for small-scale projects deemed, quote, awesome. And Christina also is a co-founder of RaffleCon, which is a meme convention, which I didn't know. (laughs) And we should talk about that. We definitely need to talk about that. And now you're an ethnographer, mm-hmm. and we can talk more about that. Mm-hmm. But first... Mm-hmm. We have a question for you. A question. Oh, boy. <laughs> I wonder what this question's going to be. <laughs> so where are you from? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, depending on how, uh, like, moody I'm being... I like if a white person asks me that my my instinct is to be like I'm from Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> but the actual fact of the matter is is that like I am not actually from Columbus, Ohio and I'm actually from China. But you don't want to But I don't want it. Yeah, exactly. Like they have to work for it, you know. <laughs> so, I was born in Fuzhou, China, which is a city in the southeast, like basically if you draw a straight line from the tip of Taiwan to the mainland, that's where mm, I'm from. Nice. Um and I lived there until I was about seven years old, and then my family moved to the U.S., specifically to Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I lived there for ten years, and then I moved to the Boston area for like seven years, and now I live here in New York. 
Cool. So mostly the Eastern time zone, but also China. Nice. nice. And how old were you when you left China? I was seven. Seven, right? Yeah. Okay. And do you remember anything about it? Yeah, I mean, I remember a lot of things about it, but probably like the strongest memory I have. Um, I know that for my family, the strongest memory they have is actually like we lost like a huge percentage of our stuff on the way over, like the airlines. My parents booked this like super convoluted flight on the way here, so there were like six layovers or something. Oh, crazy whoa. Um, but it was only twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I can't even imagine like what what any of that was. Um, I, I remember the journey, and I remember throwing up every time a plane took oh. off and every time it landed, oh. which was like twelve times. Oh my god! <laughs> and then also you along the way, so dehydrated. the airlines like lost one of like our. Four bags, so just like twenty five percent of like your belongings stuff was gone. <laughs> so my, I, I, I think my that's what my parents remember about it. My trauma that I remember from the journey, which is not actually the throwing up, but was um, oh, when God. we landed in Seattle, my mom and I, we didn't really speak any English between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we just gotten off the super long flight, and so we were like desperate for some food. And we walk up to, like, one of the terrible, like, you know... Oh, no, I'm scared. <laughs> ...stall places that exist in the airport. And, like, everything is new to us, right? Like, we've just never been here before. There's all these signs in English. We don't understand what they mean. And there are, like, sandwiches, which is just not a food that really existed in China before. Yep. Um, certainly back then. So we just, like, randomly gesture at some sandwiches. And I remember so distinctly that they had the little toothpicks <gasps> with the cellophane on top. Oh, no. Um, which I, like, came to associate with just, like, sadness because it was so, like, the food was so bad. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm like, I don't even know what we ordered. We probably ordered, like, a tuna sandwich or something. But, like, it that was, like, the moment when, like, the American dream, like, burst for me. Oh, <laughs> you just was like, wait a minute. I, like, I thought this whole place was supposed to be, like, Disneyland. That was, like, literally my understanding of what it was like. <laughs> and, like, food can be bad. Anywhere, like, but here, you know? Everywhere. (laughs) So that was a really sad moment, and I really avoided those toothpicks with the cellophane for years. Wow. Just, like, a primal fear of them. I've since come to understand that they're not the cause of bad food, but they are often a symptom. A sign. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This bad food doesn't have its shit together. Just put it together with toothpick. Exactly. (laughs) Stick it in. Yeah, hope this little color helps. Doesn't. Yeah. Um... I, I guess if you don't mind me fast forwarding like a ton, no, you're please. currently you're currently working on a project called multi entry, mm-hmm. which is like you are going back to China mm-hmm. and sort of just studying the youth, basically. Yeah. And as a person who left China and has memories of growing up there for at least a little bit, like mm-hmm. and then coming back, like, do you think things are different or are you not looking at it through that lens like what's it like yeah um things are super different um yeah. and also can you explain what multi-entry is i'm sure. sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so multi-entry i would say the most honest description of it is it's basically a container for me to do weird stuff in in china Sweet. for myself it's a conceptual <laughs> container so yeah. i call it like a an ongoing project Um, basically, like, I started going back to China as an adult, like, a few years ago, and, like, I guess five years ago at this point, and, um, it was really interesting because, like, growing up, um, I didn't get my citizenship in the U.S. until I was, like, 
19 or something like mm-hmm. that. So between the ages of seven when I moved here and like I think 21, I had only went back twice. Oh. So I had these like really long periods away from being like being away from there. Um, and when I went back, it was mostly like there was so much family stuff crammed in that I basically just hung out with family and like never saw the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like to travel and I'm a, I would say like a relatively adventurous traveler in that I don't do like a ton of, I'm not like a kite surfer adventurous traveler, but I am a like wandering around in an unknown part of town adventurous traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like so that. it was really like kind of weirding me out that whenever I went to China, I actually had this really sheltered, insular experience. Um, so once I actually became an adult, I was like visiting China without my parents and I really saw like a very different side of things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, like it didn't even occur to me that all of the stuff was happening and I didn't know about it. Because I think growing up in the States, the coverage of China was back then so one-sided, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's a smoggy sweatshop and they don't have free internet. Like, (laughs) basically that's like the entire narrative. And like, while all of those things are happening and are important stories and whatever else, it's just like, I think there's a very kind of like, I see it almost as, like, a Great Depression era, like, black and white, like, sad film role is Mm -hmm. what scrolls through my head when I think about, like, Chinese coverage here. Um, So to go back and be like, oh, yeah, of course, there are, like, lots and lots of young people and they do interesting stuff and, like, you know, they have their own struggles, but they're, like, making art and doing creative stuff was just really inspiring for me to see um and also surprisingly really inspiring to my friends so Mm -hmm. what I was doing was like kind of you know taking pictures of my experiences and kind of like sharing it back out with people on Instagram and whatever else and the there was like this phenomenal amount of like support and like really intense support for it from other Chinese Americans to the point where I had people being like that Instagram post was like the first time I've ever felt like proud to be Chinese and I was like that's that's messed up like first of all but like also I get it right like you you don't you're used to thinking of like that country I think when you interact with it in the way that we do yeah as like this kind of boring like backwards place you have to go to once every few years and like things don't work like you expect them to and then you just like hang out on your grandma's couch or whatever mm-hmm. and like watch weird TV for, you know, two weeks, and, like, and so showing people, like, no, there is this whole other side to it, um, was really exciting for me and for them, and so that's kind of what spurned multi-entry. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very loose project. (laughs) How did you find the people that you ended up meeting? Yeah, how do you, how do you connect with the youths? Um, so it just, like, as, as many, like, I think a lot of this stuff is sort of, like, increasing your surface area right like um so I found a bunch of them through and like that first trip was was hard right like I found a bunch of them through friends of my I have like one pretty cool cousin who lives in China um so she introduced me to her like filmmaker friends and her photographer friends and that was like and actually they weren't youths this was like something that I realized very quickly was like I actually meant creative class and not youths mm. and they're different yep. um but Whoa. youths is kind of like a it's useful catchword yeah. <laughs> to describe like what I mean even if it's not accurate right um so yeah, I was interviewing all these people who like own photography studios and cafes and whatever um and then uh I also like 
just like friends of mine here introduced me to random people and then they introduced me to random people but it was just basically me saying yes to like anything that came my way for a while wow um and also twitter stalking and otherwise stalking a couple of people dang shout out to like your one cool creative cousin back in the motherland (laughs) i mean she's she's kind of the inspiration for a lot of this in a way because we were really similar growing up we're like two years apart we have very similar personalities and so going back and visiting her has always been this kind of like look through the like mirror you know to be mm-hmm. like what would have happened because I, I think about that all the time like mm-hmm. what would I be like if my family didn't randomly decide to move to the U.S. when I was seven right yeah. like and she's the, kind of the closest answer I have mm-hmm. um so just watching her life and being really fascinated by like what what would it be like if I had grown up there what would like would I be the same type of person or would I have like creative friends like I do here or would I be like super square like I don't really know but I think just like looking into that possibility space is something that's really self-centered but like (laughs) fascinating what were some of the uh biggest differences that you noticed between China and the U.S. like Um, growing up as like a youth and a creative person yeah I think there's just like a huge shift in like the timeline like in the u.s i think youth culture really starts in high school Mm -hmm. and maybe for some people even when they're in middle school so like 13 onwards is like when people are exploring what their identity is and like kind of getting into trouble like listening to music their parents don't like etc and in china for the most part and this is kind of changing now but for the most part that doesn't actually start until college because there's so much pressure in middle school and high school there's so much academic pressure that most kids, like, literally don't have time to think about, like, any of that stuff until they get to college. Right. And so, as a result, everything is kind of shifted back a couple of years, which is why I very suddenly realized, like, I wasn't talking to youth. Like, the people who were mm. pursuing creative work as a career, for the most part, were, like, actually in their 30s because it took that long to kind of wow. get set up and whatever. And, and again, like, now I think it's accelerating, um, and it's not so drastic, but that was, that was like one of the sort of weird things that I didn't expect to find where I was like, oh, everything is a little bit backshifted. Wow. Um, I think also the other difference is that in the U.S. we've had so many layers of subculture and subcultural history, right? Like we think about the hippies in the 60s and like the punks and like just everything in between. And so all of our subculture builds on this like decades long you know if not longer foundation of like what it means to be subcultural and it's not that that never existed in China but I think the like the decades when my parents were growing up were so intense in terms of like just famine and war and like you know like really really terrible consuming stuff was happening um so like none of that there was no space for any of that of that stuff and so in a way you're kind of seeing this subculture like try to grow out of not nothing but like a much less fertile foundation than we have and it's really fascinating because it's like all of that stuff is kind of happening at once right now without the kind of progression that we know from here because obviously it's a different place and like there's no reason for it to proceed in this way but you see kids really quickly kind of 
going from punk to trap and back, and then, like, <laughs> you know, because it's just like it's all like they it's just all counterculture. Yeah, they just want to do something different, and yeah. um, and so watching kind of that explosive energy around those ideas without the kind of like anything to latch onto yeah. is really fascinating wow. in a very abstract way. Yeah. yeah. I I'm fascinated by the idea that like people are finding like exploring these like quote alternative punk counterculture lifestyles when they when they've already lived a certain amount of time that I think how that changes how you experiment with an alternate version of yourself must be so different as opposed mm-hmm. to your 13 and like pretty dumb if you're like mm-hmm. me and you're just like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing but if you're like 19 20 and then you start being like what is it like to be yeah. different what does that feel like and right. the whole thing happening at once it sounds stressful yeah it's very <laughs> messy it's definitely very messy um, and I think it's like even harder for a lot of people because there's also like you know it's kind of pushed in one direction um because it's they're like starting it later yeah um but the other direction there's also kind of like a harder boundary um right now still because like overall society is still relatively conservative and so there is this like intense pressure to like get your shit together and like get married buy a house and buy a car right Mm -hmm. certainly if you're like in middle class like that's that's kind of the stuff you're supposed to be working towards and um and so you see people hit this age and then just like drop out right like it suddenly kind of like turn their whole lives around in a different or like otherwise have to make serious compromises like and again like here we kind of have this you know it's it's not that like most kids have the luxury of just getting to do whatever they want for sure but there's there's kind of like a cultural understanding of what it means to be someone who's like an artist in their 30s yeah. certainly in the big cities in New York yeah um and there you know like in the big cities there's much more room for that but there's also like you know for a long time like if you were a woman and you didn't have like you you weren't married by 30 like there were bad names people called you you oh, know and that like christmas cake yeah <laughs> well that's a japanese, that's a japanese yeah. <laughs> yeah same same general concept right? yeah. um and so i think like that that's a really challenging space to negotiate so yeah. i'm i'm just like i don't even really have any like formulated opinions about it but just kind of watching people go through this is really interesting to me did you gravitate towards any subcultures growing up in Columbus, Ohio? Oh, yeah. Um, That's a great question. I <laughs> lived basically my whole life on the internet when I lived in Columbus. Um, Me too. I used to tell people my hometown was the internet. Oh, so actually, I love that. That is where I'm from. Oh, nice. I'm from the internet. Um, yeah, because like literally between the ages of 13 and 17, what I was doing when I got home from school was going online the entire time. So, um... I did not have access to any, like, real-life subcultures, really, that I was, like, allowed to or really even, like, could run into. Mm. Um, So instead, I became a huge internet nerd. I was really into anime. I went to Mm -hmm. anime conventions. Oh, Oh, yeah. Uh, I was really into video games, but I was not allowed to play video games. So I hung out on video game forums on the internet and talked to other people about video games. Oh, Extremely vicariously, yeah. And sometimes I would manage to like smuggle one home. Um, as far as like P 
PC games that I was into, I was like actually pretty hardcore addicted to The Sims for a while. Mm. Oh yeah, that's definitely a a thing. It's like black tar heroin. (laughs) (laughs) I knew, uh, so World of Warcraft came out the summer before I went to college, Mm -hmm. and I had been like, this is like very short-sighted of me, but like baby Christina's concept of college was like, I'm going to play as many video games as I can (laughs) and no one can stop me. And then when I realized that World of Warcraft was going to come out, I like, I had a really rude awakening because I was like, this is going to ruin my life. Like, (laughs) I will not graduate from college if I let myself play this game. So I actually banned myself from playing video games in college. Wow. Dang, such discipline. Yeah. I mean, it was more because, like, I knew the depths of my addiction, and, like, I I knew that I had to head it off at the (laughs) pass. That's how I feel. It's like, I know The Sims has a mobile app, and it's like, no, I'm not even looking at it. I'm not going to touch it. Like, you can't do it. Exactly. Yeah, you have... You have things to live for. Exactly. <laughs> Not just these fake people that you control. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So what else What else was like uh, your youth kind of like growing up? Like once you like left Columbus, where'd you go? Mm, I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nice. Yep. Um, and where I was just like, oh my God, friends all the time living near me, living with me. Oh no, what do I do? Uh, so college was like academically, you know, challenging. <laughs> In that you... Challenging how? Uh, no, I just was like not, not prioritizing oh. <laughs> study. Noise. Yeah. Um, but let's see. I got into I got into like a bunch of. I basically was just like, give me all the subcultures, like all of them. Um, so I got into a bunch of different messy types of scenes, and then I think like where I eventually settled was. Like, the, the one part of subculture I continue to care about is just sort of internet culture in general, yeah. um, which is contentious these days. How, like, how did that manifest, like, as you continued, like, gr- as you were growing up in Ohio, mm-hmm. you went to Cambridge, eventually moved to New York, like, what mm-hmm. is, what was your relationship with the internet like? Because, like, you yeah. might have left Columbus, mm-hmm. but, like... If the internet is your home, you never left home. I never left hey. home. Hey. Yeah, it's true. So, like, what was your relationship with the internet like that whole time? Yeah, so I think after I moved away from Columbus when I got to college, there was a period when I kind of, like, spent... I, I spent way less time on the internet than I used to because, like, suddenly I had access to, like, people and like stuff to humans. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, not that the people on the internet weren't real true, humans, but true, it was just, exactly. like, a, a different a different experience, right? And, um... Uh, what ended up happening, though, was that, like, right at that time, um, Harvard had, like, this in- this new institute for, like, internet policy called the Berkman Center. Shout out to the Berkman Center. Yeah. Best place. Um, and they were doing, they, w- they were actually based out of the law school, but they were doing a bunch of stuff around internet policy. And it was a really ex- exciting place for me because I had never realized that the internet could be work in any way. ever before that and all of a sudden I was meeting these like really incredible professors who were writing about like copyright law or like you know like remix culture on the internet or like censorship or Mm. just all of this like really sort of ahead of their time stuff about how the internet works and I was like oh I can just do this all the time (laughs) cool (laughs) um so I interned at the Berkman Center uh for a bunch of a long time and then like was kind of part of this extended community of like people who were thinking about the internet in a very serious way I guess Mm -hmm. um 
back then, which was it was still relatively early for that to be happening. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how RaffleCon came about was that I was one of a handful of like resident millennials, for lack of a better word, who we were like invited to go to all of these like conferences about the internet because we were like young students who actually cared about this. But we, we saw all these like professors and academics and other sort of like you know, thinkers <laughs> talking about the internet and and sometimes what they were saying really didn't resonate with our experiences. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my friend Tim and I, uh, we started talking about like, what would it be like to have a conference where we really highlighted the voices of the internet that we came from, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. was a very specific subset, I think, of, of what the internet was, but it was like the slice that kind of built the culture that a lot of the stuff that we're used to now is built yeah. on top of. Um, so it started off basically as a extended inside joke, um, but Tim is really good at executing. So he <laughs> like put up a website, and then all of a sudden people were like giving us money, and we were like, "Oh no, <laughs> now we're accidentally scamming people if we don't like <laughs> do this." Do yeah, exactly. And so it was this really like ramshackle operation where we were kind of like not lying but over representing what we had access to to like every group so we were like yeah we totally have an audience venue like yeah venue don't worry we totally have money like yeah don't worry sponsors we totally have speakers like and none of it was true (laughs) but like we eventually kind of like put it all together and uh it, it ended up being much bigger than any of us were expecting um it was like the first one had about uh I think I told the fire department there were 550 people, but there were actually 700 people. Whoa, what? <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was. It ended up being a pretty big deal. And then after that, I think the internet just became part of my professional identity. So then I, you know, it 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 just stayed with me, and I stayed with it forever. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think a lot of the things that I've uh, read about you and the stuff that you do is that you um, help sort of like foster creatives and sort of like enable them to do like to not worry about like the semantics of figuring the back end stuff out and just like focus on creating. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um I think I found myself in the situation like I'm not by nature I think an organized person, <laughs> but <laughs> I often like I think because when I got to college like I really I'm drawn to people who have these like big spectacular ideas and like that those are the people who like I want to spend all my time around and to the degree uh like my main motivation for for like learning or doing anything is just to like stay in these people's good graces so that mm. they continue to be my friend that's yeah. like my only driving force through life it's I, really I unambitious. super relate <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, like, just trying not to get found out <laughs> um but like one thing that you know often came up is that uh some of these people are not the most organized. Um, and so I frequently found myself in the position of being the like slightly more organized person in a room full of like creative chaos <laughs> um, and being like, fine, I'm the one who's going to put the Google Doc together. Um, so I just became like a person who puts the Google Docs together. And uh, and yeah, like I, I really enjoy kind of helping people, I think, shape their ideas into like real life form in a way that doesn't feel um demoralizing Mm -hmm. because I I think like if you make the right choices it can actually be even better in real life than than like what it felt like in your head but I think Mm -hmm. that if you don't 
if you try not to think about it, which is what a lot of creatives, I think, tend towards, then you end up in a situation where it's like last minute, you have to get it done, and then it's going to feel like a terrible drag. So mm. I try to make the process slightly less painful for other people. Um, but I've also like had different relationships with that, I think. Um, I think it's really, really hard to do both at the same time for mm. one person. Mm. Even if you can do both, it's really hard just to be both the person who's coming up with the big ideas and the person who's like, well, but maybe, like, you know. Yeah, that must be um, just like a, a internal conflict and downward, eventually yeah, downward yeah. spiral. <laughs> yeah, it feels really um, sort of self-canceling in a way. Mm. Um, and so I think in recent years, I've, I've tried to figure out a way to make space for myself to be the person with the ideas rather mm-hmm. than the person who's editing down. Yeah. Because I think if you get locked into that editing down business, you can become one of those like bitter producers. And I, I felt myself going in that direction where it's just like, no. Um, and I don't ever want to be the like, the no person. I want to be the like, but maybe this way instead. <laughs> like, um, you know, so, so I think like I, I've been trying to be more cognizant of like how much time I'm spending in either role. And is that how it felt like? editing the letters for black lives a little bit i mean i feel like it was a a good like starting off point for people to like openly contribute and Mm -hmm. and people were just like editing all the time and then i remember that you switched it to comment only at Mm -hmm. some point can you talk about that sure yeah so um yeah i think like i through a lot of these different experiences that we've talked about like a little bit through rafflecon a lot through awesome foundation um and just through a bunch of these other affiliations Um, I kind of came to learn this, like, form of, uh, very gentle, I hope, dictatorship (laughs) is kind of my approach to, um, to managing large groups of decentralized people who often don't know each other, Mm -hmm. which is what Letters for Black Lives was. But, like, it's really pretty remarkable to me that that was a group that managed to produce anything, considering it was, like, 500 strangers on a Google Doc, right? Like, that should not have happened. Um, And so I knew that if anything was going to happen, like, somebody had to kind of make the shots. I think, like, I I became pretty allergic to, like, consensus-driven models of, 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 you know, governance uh, in certain situations. Like, I think there are situations in which it's really important. Like, if you have a roommate meeting, like, everyone should (laughs) absolutely agree on everything. But... When there's that many strangers, like, to some degree, someone needs to provide the structure. And it was such an unstructured exercise in some ways that, like, I really felt like it was important for someone to say, like, these are the ground rules. And we're happy to move those ground rules. We can talk about them. But, like, you need to know where the walls are so that, like, you don't feel just, like, too unconstrained to do work i think there's a danger in sort of being like you can do anything you want which just means people assume that there are invisible boundaries they haven't found yet Mm -hmm. as opposed to you being like these are the boundaries but you can move them if you want Mm. how does it like how did you i i imagine that it is it is challenging to be the person who is like okay we're going to set some ground rules now and Mm -hmm. like what how were you able to just sort of like, 
how did you decide that it was you who was going to be stepping up and being like, okay, like we need to like, I'm going to comment only this doc now. Like, right. thanks everyone. I mean, like I literally own the Google docs. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think that that actually is kind of the method is like as much as possible. If you can design a system, this, this sounds evil, but I promise it's not, um, or <laughs> It's not for me. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's really, it's, it's easy to design systems where people follow the rules because you have made that the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the difference between a survey and an open-ended question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you have a survey, you're, what you're asking people to do is constrain their wide sort of range of opinions into, like, one of four buckets, mm-hmm. right? And I think, like, uh, one of my friends who's, like, a brilliant organizer told me this a long time ago and it really stuck like if you're trying to get a two-year-old to put their shoes on you don't ask do you want to put your shoes on you ask which shoe do you want to put on first (laughs) right and that like they still have a choice but you've like they also don't have a choice right and so it's sort of like where you choose to surface choices for people like is a way to subtly guide them if they trust you and in this case I think because I was the instigator and nobody else really like wanted to fight me for this because it didn't seem like a fun job right like and it wasn't um um, like it it was easy to be the person who's like hey let's just do things this way Mm -hmm. um because the absence of that was like a long debate about how we were going to do things and nobody really wanted to do that so i think by by giving people an easy way to be like yes no or comment like that that made things a lot more streamlined um, but that's that's generally my approach to things is sort of like whittle down people's visible choices <laughs> and then be really, really open to dialogue if they have legitimate grievances about how that was done. <laughs> I think you'd be a great product designer if you ever were interested yeah. in, in joining like technology in that field. <laughs> I've thought about it. Speaking of which, can you talk about um, the course that you teach, Entrepreneurial Design at SBA? Sure. I know that you've talked with Gary about this before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm interested to hear like if you see it differently or if it's the same or just how you describe it. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because Gary always describes the class as a reality TV game show. Uh-huh. And I always make a face when he does this. <laughs> and it's not because I disagree with him. But it's because Gary doesn't watch any reality shows, <laughs> so I feel like it's hypocritical for him to describe the class as this thing, this medium that he's not even familiar with. Right? <laughs> so that's that's the face that I make. But it basically is a reality gaming game show. Um, it, I, I think the class right now is actually we're in the middle of kind of redesigning it in a mm. kind of drastic way. Um, so it's changing. But I think the last four years when I've taught it with Gary. Um, the class has been like this like forcing function to get the students to work out in the real world and deal with all the messy implications of that mm-hmm. from like the messiness of t- having to talk to real people about whether or not they like your idea to the messiness of the feelings that you're going to feel when your Kickstarter project is in its like you know like eighth day and people have stopped paying attention but you're still like a hundred dollars away from being funded Mm -hmm. um and just trying to give them like the muscle memory and sort of like the the tools and processes for like coping with all of that wow yeah because i think like as an independent creator or like just freelancer or whatever like person out in the world like i've been freelancing for like 
five years now, and I've had unorthodox jobs my whole life. And I don't really know that you get better at it. You just sort of like, it's it's like surfing or skateboarding, neither of which I can do. <laughs> like, I think you just get better at like knowing like how to to ride the waves, you know, yeah, like the waves true. are not going to go away. You just sort of are like, okay, this is like this type of wave and this is what I should do. Yeah. This is this type of wave and I'm just going to wipe out and there's nothing I can do about it. I just got to focus on picking myself back up. Right. Um, yeah. So just trying to give the students like a dose of that mm-hmm. and then also get them to think like as a result of that experience, getting them to understand that like the only way they can survive in that world is like with the help of each other and with like other people so like getting them to realize that like relying on other people and asking for help are not like these shameful crutches but are actually just like a necessary part of the creative process that's so cool (laughs) i can't wow so cool what kind of projects have you been most um most proud of to like see your students kind of come up with Um, I think there's a couple of different types of projects that I'm really proud of. I think one is when the students really figure out what they're into Mm -hmm. and they didn't know before. Um, Mm. It's a really weird ask. And I think it's something that, like, I don't think I figured out what I was into until, like, after I started teaching this class. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because all this, like, China, like, ethnography stuff was pretty new and I think I like I lucked out with RaffleCon like having the opportunity to work on something I was super passionate about Mm. but I kind of I felt like for a long time I was like that was it like I peaked at 20 and I'm never gonna make anything good again and like who knows you know um so I think it's really exciting when the light bulb goes off for the students where they're like oh if I like something I can just like do that (laughs) and I don't have to like do all this other stuff that I've you know like I'm I'm done sort of being forced into decisions by other people I have the agency to kind of like go and make my own choices Mm. um even if it's not necessarily easy or if I'll have to make certain sacrifices but just at least like this is what I want and this is how I get there um so those types of projects are always exciting and like sometimes they don't even result in good projects but like it helps them later on in um, their thesis projects or in life. And, like, that's that's a cool feeling. That um, is cool. The other ones are when the students come up with good puns for names. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some. Do you have uh, any, do you have any I think ones? the best one in the history of classes uh, of the first year I taught, uh, these two <laughs> students made a game called Game of Phones. Oh, uh, that's really And I was really like, the good. internet is going to love this, so I feel like I've done my job here. <laughs> <laughs> first year, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it's still, like, a real product that they they're both still running as like a side hustle to their day jobs. What what is it, if you don't mind? It's a a card game where um, it's kind of like Cards Against Humanity, like that, or Apples to Apples, that style, but Mm -hmm. basically there are prompts like everybody show the last picture you took on your phone. Oh! And then the judge picks the best one. That's so cool! That's so That's awesome! You must see some, so many like cool and weird ideas like working out of especially a school like SVA where it's just like everyone's kind of a weirdo art student yeah with like the the who are usually interested in like harnessing technology in some sort of way yeah yeah <laughs> I feel like I've like accomplished like nothing by comparison I'm what have like... we done Kate <laughs> 
the thing is that I like I didn't directly do most of this stuff. I just like kind of was there <laughs> for it, you know, <laughs> like nudging it in, yeah. in the right direction. That's great. But, Wow. I feel like now is a good time to transition into <laughs> how Asian are you question. <laughs> there are no wrong answers. No wrong yeah. answers. Uh, is this a series of questions? Uh, just like a couple. A couple. Okay. <laughs> like a rapid I'm fire I love taking quizzes. Do you remember Quizilla? Yeah. Quizilla used to be my favorite. Oh, mine was... Um, E-mode before it became OkCupid. Okay right. Yep, I remember that. Yep. It was all about that. There were, They had the Myers-Briggs thing mm-hmm. that, like, named... It was basically Myers-Briggs, but they had, like, names for each of the 16 personalities or whatever. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then eventually it turned into a dating site right. that took all of your information and tried to find a match for you, quote-unquote. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so uh, internet quizzes are the best. Yeah. So, first question... <laughs> Would you like to go first? Sure. <laughs> Has anyone ever called you whitewashed? Um, definitely during Letters for Black Lives. Really? Definitely. Like, what? Yeah, Asian MRAs came out of the men's rights activists came out of the woodwork that I did not know they were hiding in to to like yell at me about different things. What? Which was wild. It was wild. What? I was just like, I didn't even know this demographic was here. So that happened. But like, I think. For most of my life, it's been implied that I was whitewashed. (laughs) By who? I mean, I didn't really have many Asian friends in college, actually. Okay. Um, Is that something that you actively tried to, like, avoid? I don't think it was active so much as, like, I went to, like, an Ivy League, right? And, like, I think the prominent, like, Asian students' organizations were on a different vibe than I was on. <laughs> they didn't want to do anything fun or weird or vaguely destructive <laughs> and that is what I was about in college. <laughs> so, like uh, my friend Tim who organized RaffleCon with me and I um, we tried to host like a we tried to convince the Asian Students Association to host a screening of like Better Luck Tomorrow yes. and they wouldn't do it because they, they were like this is a bad look. No! What? I was like, you know what's a bad look is the fact that your only social activities revolve around bubble tea. Oh. <laughs> Just Burn. saying. Oh my god. Bye, so y'all. True. Anyway. Whoa. Um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get a similar feeling from, like, having grown up and spent some, or, like, spent some time in China going back often, like, the way the folks from their see you like do Mm -hmm. they think of you as like a really american person or like what does that count as whitewashed i bristle at the idea that american means white but like that is status quo that i hate yeah (laughs) yeah um it's funny because like they know something's off right like Uh (laughs) they definitely (laughs) can tell that something is weird but when I'm there for like longer than two weeks, I kind of like my Chinese gets better. I kind of get a little bit better at like assimilating for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And then people like refuse to believe that I'm American, even though they know something is off. Weird. And even though like I tell them, you know, they'll just be like, like I've had this reaction multiple times from people who are like, oh, I've been to America too. Like, stop, you know, posing. Oh. And I'm like, no, 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 like, I've lived there for, like, 20-plus years, and English is, like, legitimately, like, my first language at this point. <laughs> and they're just, they kind of don't buy it. Wow. Um, or it's, like, it's hard for them to grasp that 
these things can both be true that I can be like ethnically Chinese but culturally American for the yeah. most part. I get I get that a lot when I um I go to a like a dance studio where a lot of the folks many of the Asian folks there are like Japanese natives or like mm-hmm. non-American Asian uh, and they they're just like so stunned by the fact that I speak English like really well mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah I grew up in I grew up here I was born in New York and they're like what yeah. how do you speak Japanese then right yeah like, yeah they're not mutually exclusive things mm-hmm. but like it's I suppose like if you grow up in a country where like there's only one language for the most part quote right or like one like yeah I mean I think we really strange. take for granted like how much like cultural infrastructure there is in America for being an immigrant right like it's not that it's a comfortable experience or that like we aren't under attack for a variety of reasons all the time but like we at least understand what that means and like Chinese people do not understand what that means for like to a huge degree and now it's starting to change but it's changing in a like like if I told people I went to school in the U.S. they would understand that Right. right, but the fact that I went to elementary school in the U.S. doesn't make sense. Mm. Um, so it's like, I don't know. It's changing, but it's weird. Yeah. Wow. Cool. That was a great. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. What else you got? <laughs> um, what are some? Do you have any like, quote, alternative medicine like home remedies and like? Oh, do wow. are they are any of them from like? you learn them from your parents or just like something that you see that like a, like a quote western doctor would be like that's not going to do anything except just make you feel better <laughs> uh-huh. like in your brain it's like do you have yeah like for that? sure um, <laughs> it's funny because like i really rejected all of this stuff growing up and then as i've gotten older like oh God, so, it, it's like it's like happening to me in yeah. a way that i can't control <laughs> um so once i hit like 25 i started drinking hot water that's like water. the most I like the answer I, to how Asian are you is I drink hot water. Damn. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm hella Asian too. You just drink why, hot water too? Why yeah, bother heating up cold water with your insides when it can just be body temperature yeah. going in? Like yeah. Oh, you you drink like lukewarm. Yeah, I, what I do is it's like two thirds Dojirushi, like from mm-hmm. the machine, yeah. and then one third from the tap, and then it's perfect Whoa. drinking yeah. temperature. It's just a little hotter than like lukewarm. Nice. I yeah. love that. Maybe we should make like a sliding scale, right? Where it's just like, are you like. Like, what temperature is your water? <laughs> <laughs> Strongly correlated. Zero to 190. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. How did you discover that that was a thing? Is that something that your parents did? Oh yeah, for oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, my my mom isn't like my mom does not touch like cold things. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know where I got my like hot water drink. I think at some point I was just like I want something that feels like coffee but isn't gonna like is gonna let me sleep and I like don't want to drink tea cuz that makes me eventually thirsty. Mhm. And then I just started drinking hot water. Yeah, I I realized that, like, I (laughs) would drink tea, and then I was like, oh, the part of, like, I love tea, I love being a tea snob, Mm -hmm. but, like, I realized that most of the time, the thing that I actually loved about the tea was just that it was warm. (laughs) So I was like, I I could just, like, not put tea in this, and it would still serve the same purpose, (laughs) so, like, why not? 
Oh, um, that's amazing. So there's there's that. Um, I don't know that I have any like medicinal beliefs about it, but like that's definitely a thing. Despite my best efforts, I still kind of buy into the like Chinese medicine like hot cold thing. Yep. Like so, in Chinese medicine, there's the belief that all food is either like hot or cold, but these don't map onto like actual temperatures. Mm-hmm. So like fried foods are like hot, and then like oh, certain dark leafy green vegetables are cold. But there's like it gets weird um, once you go down to the specifics. Um, <laughs> so I don't like buy into. I'm not like rigidly adhering to that, but sometimes I will just be like. I just want, like, daikon. I need, like, a lot of daikon in my life to restore, like, whatever, you know, huh. bad, bad eating activity <laughs> I've been, like, like, Wait. my crown fried chicken, like, needs to be tempered with this daikon. That's the equalizer? Yeah, like, yeah. We need to equilibrate with daikon. Yeah, exactly. I, that. I feel like I've always sort of intuited this, but, like, I've never heard of this hot-cold, like, aside from literal temperature hot-cold food, but, like, yeah. this dichotomy of hot versus cold food, like... It makes so much sense to me. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm like the, the it's a revelation. Parts make a lot of sense. The specific parts, like I I asked my mom about this once, and like she doesn't I think really remember, but it's sort of, <laughs> it's just like a collection of gossip, Fuzzy. you know, basically. Yeah. Um, but she was like, yeah, like this, like pears are cold, but then if you like cook them, they're hot but only if you cook them with rock sugar. And I was like, none of this is science. Like, you're a chemist. You should know better, like, but it's fine, whatever. Um, so just generally speaking, I think I, I seek that balance. And then also I've become, I'm not afraid of or, like, believe in the bad health effects of air conditioners, but I've just become more sensitive to air conditioners. Mm, I am which very I sensitive feel really um, sad about because, like, again, I, I fought really hard against this. You know, growing, growing up. up. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, damn. Oh, <laughs> Maybe my... they were right. <laughs> Do you, like... I feel very sensitive to, like, certain parts of my body being exposed. Mm-hmm. Like, when it's cold outside. Like, my head. Your neck. My neck. My stomach. <laughs> These are all things that my parents, yeah. growing up, would be like, make sure, like, you're not wearing a scarf. Or, like, you're not wearing a hat. And I'm like, I don't need a hat. I have hair. Right, yeah. But, like, now I'm just, like... I need a beanie at all times when it's cold. Yeah, I, ha- I can't sleep without something covering my belly. Even, me either! Even <gasps> if it's super, super hot outside. Really? I need to, like, even if it's just, like, the most minor, like, piece of, like, a it's sheet. It's, like, just the top sheet. I it's just the need of the it top to be... Sheet. I need to feel safe. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, I have never felt that way. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know what kind of, like, what is it deeply com- effective cultural conditioning <laughs> this came out of. Because, again, like, I fought this my whole life, right? Yeah. Because I kept being like, this doesn't make any sense, yeah. whatever. Like, yeah, it's, it does feel weird to not have your belly be covered. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Dude, I feel so hurt. I feel so, like, like seen right now. This is amazing. It's very validated. Wow, I feel very validated. Wow. I feel like this is the thing about, like, Asian American identity is sort of, like, uncovering, like, what parts of what we thought were personal delusions are actually mass delusions. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what this section aims to expose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. This has been awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had so much fun. Yes. I'm, like, Thanks emotional so and, like, me. thinking about all these revelations that I've had today. Where can people... <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Where can people find you and your work on the internet? 
Um, the easiest place to find me on the internet is on Twitter. I'm at SheHulk, X-U-H-U-L-K. Um, but the best place to actually, like, see my work is ChristinaShe.org. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We loved having you. Yay! This Yay. was so fun! Yay! Internet quizzes. Hey, guys. Do you have a favorite episode of So Where Are You From? Tell us what it is. Tell us what it is. We're really, really curious to know if there's any episode that you listened to that has especially stood out to you. Email us at swavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. And if you want to follow the podcast on the internet, you can follow us at swavepodcast. S-W-A-Y-F podcast. Yep. On Twitter and Instagram. And our email, as we said before, is swavepodcast at gmail.com. And our website is swavepodcast.com. Yeah, look there for show notes, old episodes, and a little bit about me and Yoko. Yeah, baby photos of us. <laughs> we were cute as kids. Bowl guts. Yep. yep <laughs> <true>. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.